Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. and They did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This, this past week, I was watching one of the random suggested YouTube videos that come across your, if you open the YouTube, sometimes they just advertise random videos just to try to suck you into that vortex, and they're pretty good at it. They know exactly what you're interested in, what you're looking for, and this past week, I saw a video by Bon Appetit, that um, company that has that magazine and a bunch of stuff online, but they created a video that was entitled 59 Ways to Prepare an Egg, almost every way that you can prepare an egg to eat. So I watched, it's 30 minutes long, so it's because they go through all the different methods, and a few of the ways, I, we're familiar with a lot of them, sunny side up, or over easy, my personal favorite is scrambled, or poached, boiled, pickled, and some people microwave their eggs, I think that's personally not a big fan of that, you crack it and you just put it in a bowl, throw it in the microwave. Um, you can also grill an egg, uh, of course, in its shell, put it just straight on the grill. You can dehydrate an egg, or if you're like Napoleon Dynamite, you can just crack it into a, a glass and swirl it around and just take it like a shot, because apparently some people do that. And they counted that as a way to prepare an egg. Now, what's the point? To internalize the riches of an egg, to enjoy the egg, right? If you're a vegan today, forgive me for this analogy, it may not resonate with you, or if you just don't like eggs. But my, my point is, to get the benefits of an egg, there are many ways by which you can go about it, right? Many different ways to prepare it, to cook it, to internalize all that the egg can do for your body, minus the cholesterol, of course. Now, here's the, here's the bridge, right, to the resurrection. Today is resurrection day. What's the bridge? Here we go. In a similar way, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, there are multiple ways by which you can look at the resurrection. There are just so many ways in scripture and thematically by which you can unpack and dissect all the riches of what the resurrection is and of what Easter Sunday is all about. For example, there are four gospels. You could go through, how does Matthew portray the resurrection? How does Mark do it? What's different? What's unique about it? How does Luke do it? How does John do it? If, if you want to go a different direction, you could consider what was the women's experience on that day? Because the women, and Mary in particular, they were the first people to meet the risen Lord. What was their experience like? Or you could think about what did Peter experience? Because right? Peter, he's one of the ones along with 
most likely John, who ran to the tomb to see the tomb for themselves. Right? What, what did he encounter? Or you can think about Thomas. Right? Infamously, he's known as Doubting Thomas, though he is the one who believed in Christ after seeing him. So he should be the one who's known as Believing Thomas. How did he understand and experience the resurrection? Or you can fast forward a little bit. 1 Corinthians, how did Paul recount the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15 is actually what many consider to be the magnum opus about the resurrection. It's just almost 50 plus verses about Christ rising from the dead, what that means for us and the history of it and the implications for us today, right? Many different ways by which to approach the resurrection. Today, I want to approach Christ's resurrection through the lens of Luke 18. And as we read that, and as you might, might have looked at that, you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with Easter? That's not the first text I think about when I think about Easter Sunday. But I hope that as we walk through the text, you'll be able to see that this is very, very relevant for you and I today in the 21st century. So as we walk through the text, as we unpack it, this is what I want you to remember. Right, if you forget everything I say, this is what I want you to try to remember. When you see the resurrected Christ with eyes of faith, everything changes in your life. When you see the resurrected Christ with eyes of faith, everything changes in your life. And to see Christ more clearly, to put on the, the right lenses so we can see him 2020, we'll walk through the text and we'll consider Jesus's prediction, the disciples' confusion, and then Bartimaeus's restored vision. But I'm going to call him Bart to shorten the name a little bit. So firstly, Jesus's prediction. This is found in verses 31 to 33. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Just stop right there. When you think about Jesus, or when society, when the culture at large thinks about Jesus, it's easy to think of him in two big ways. Right? You, if, those of you who have been here, you may have heard me say this before, but it's a good refresher reminder. Right? When you think about Christ in this secular way, he's either one, a good teacher, he taught a lot of good morals, and or two, he's a compassionate, merciful miracle worker. Right? He, he made time for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, the outcast, the, the reviled in society. He cared about those, but he also taught a lot about morality. And that is certainly true in scripture. Right? He was the most eloquent teacher. The parables he spoke, spoke straight to the heart. And he touched many lives, restored many people, as we'll see in just a moment with Bartimaeus. But Jesus is so much more than that. Scripture records Christ, not as just a miracle worker, but as God himself. It has come in human flesh. And in the Christmas account, right, Matthew chapter 1, the angel said about Jesus, that Jesus came into the world, he's coming, he's coming through Mary, why? To save his people from their sin. That is why Christ came into the world. Of course, to do miracles, of course, to teach about how we should live in this life, but he came, most importantly, to save us from our sin. And that's what Luke is telling us here, in Matthew, or in Luke 18, verse 31. Right, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And if you recall in Luke chapter 9, this is the first time Luke mentions it in the gospel. 
Luke 9, verse 51, as the time approached for Christ, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Right? There's a point in Jesus' life and in his ministry in which he finally realized, my time is coming. I'm going to ascend back to the Father, but before I go back, before I ascend above, I must descend below. And I have some work to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so from Luke 9, 51, towards the end of the gospel, he is just making step by step by step, page after page, miracle after miracle, he's getting closer to Jerusalem. Why? What happened there? Right, you know what happened. The crucifixion and the resurrection. That's when Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we sing about and we know in, on Palm Sunday. So Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. And Jesus, right, here's the thing. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Right, Jesus is God. Newsflash for you, Jesus is God. He knows the future. He knows the death he's going to endure. Look at the text. Everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew what was going to happen. But he also knew, after the fact, he knew the resurrection was right around the corner. He knew that, but the disciples did not. The disciples were still in their mind thinking that Jesus was going to be this powerful, mighty, triumphant ruler who is going to overthrow the Roman rulers, overthrow all of the people oppressing the nation of Israel. There, then and there, physically and tangibly, right in front of their eyes. They didn't know what was going to happen. But Jesus cared for his followers. He cared for his disciples. And he told them ahead of time what was going to happen. And this whole past week, as I was looking at this text, this was one of the main questions as I was trying to ponder, what is going on here? And it was this, why did Jesus predict this? Why did he announce it beforehand to his followers? Have you ever thought about that? Because Jesus did it three times in each of the gospels. And time and time again, as we'll see in just a moment, the disciples didn't understand. So if they didn't get it, why would he announce it in the first place? The gospel of John, I think, gives us some hints as to why he did that. John 13, in verse 18, this is in the upper room, right? Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. So Jesus, in verse 18, he had just predicted Judas's betrayal. Like, one of you is going to betray me soon. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, my disciples, that this is going to happen before it happens, so that when it does, you'll believe that I am who I am. Did you catch that? I'm telling you what's going to happen so that when it does happen, you'll believe I am who I am. In John chapter 14, Jesus continuing to give the final instructions to his followers. Jesus speaks about sending the Holy Spirit. And, and then in verse 28, Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. John 14 verse 29, listen to this. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. All right, so for you and I today, right, here, here's the, try to apply it to us today. God's promises, God's truth, his words may not always be immediately felt. You may not always immediately see 
what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. You might not get how it all fits into place. You might not always fully understand. But it seems like a lot of times in life and in Scripture, the promises of God become alive after the crucifixion. Right? I, I think in particular, one of the most glorious promises of Christ, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Right? You and I can hear that. Yeah, I got, I got that. I, I, I can cognitively get that. But it's only after, for some of you here, you know, it's only after enduring the loss of a child that becomes real. Or enduring months or years of grueling cancer treatment that literally beats up and destroys your body. It's only after the fact that you can testify Lord, I know you've never left me. You have never forsaken me. It's kind of what's going on here. You don't get fully what I'm saying about the crucifixion. You will get it one day. And when it does, when after the fact, right, after Good Friday, after all of this, you're going to look back and you're going to remember, I told you that. It's as if Jesus in the most beautiful way is saying, I told you so in just a very loving, gentle, beautiful way. So if today you're in that kind of Good Friday moment, you might not tangibly be feeling the truth, the promises, the word of God, comforting your soul, giving you assurance. I encourage you, just hold on. Hold on a little longer. Because one day you will look back and you will remember what God has done for you. But this leads us Verse 34, the disciples' confusion. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. The disciples here are absolutely clueless. This is the third time that Jesus has hammered this point home. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. It just completely goes over their head. They have no category in their mind to consider what does Jesus actually mean by this. And earlier in Luke, uh, I think it's in chapter 9. Yeah, chapter 9, verse 45. It tells us they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, but also this, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Right, so part of the issue here is uh, the disciples just inability to grasp it. Part of it might be the case that God is actively not wanting to reveal it fully to them yet. But part of the issue too, just frankly, they didn't ask him about it. They didn't ask Jesus, what do you mean by that? They were too afraid. Now what's going on, right? To you and I, we read this, we hear this. And if you've been in the church a while, you know, well, yeah, that's Christianity 101, right? Jesus had to die and rise again. That's just so basic. How can you not understand that? Try to insert yourself into the disciples' shoes and and just consider their perspective. So here's a question for you, and I want some feedback here. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, when they endured hardship, when enemies oppressed them, when when enemies came in and took them away, right, the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian empire going in to ransack their their entire family, their, their cities and all that, When the nation of Israel suffered in the Old Testament, why did that happen? Let me hear somebody. 
Why did that happen? Say it again. Bingo. They fell from God's ways, right? This is common sense even to us today, but even more so back then. Because back then, there was just this strong belief, if you do good in life, you will have good happen in life. If you are bad, if you are sinful, if you were wrong, if you go off of the ways of God, if you don't listen to his word, then yeah, of course you'll suffer. Of course you'll die. Of course you'll be destroyed. That's what God said in the book of Deuteronomy, right? I'm setting before you two paths, the path of righteousness, the path of sin. You choose righteousness, you will live. You choose sin, you will die. It's just common sense. So to the disciples, they know Jesus is from God. They know Jesus is a good, righteous prophet. They know he is, right, they've lived with him. They've never seen him sin. And to them, they're thinking, what? The son of man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles, to the enemies? He's going to die? What? No, that, that doesn't make any sense. He's never sinned. He's not at fault. He's, not in any, he's never done any wrong at all. And so they just don't grasp that. And it brings up an important question. What then is Jesus saying? What is he getting at? I like what one commentator said. He said, here, Luke implies that Jesus is handed over for our sake and in our place. And you see, dear friends, today, if you are familiar with Christianity or if you are new to it, Right, you're exploring, you're trying to figure out, is this for me? Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can it, is it relevant for my life today? Either way, if you've been a Christian a while, if you're exploring Christianity, this is the gospel message for you, right? And it's simply this. Jesus is God himself who came into the world. There's three big components I'll highlight. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And he rose from the dead so that you too can rise from the dead at the end of time, right? That is the gospel message in a nutshell. It's gospel simply means good news. And when Jesus said, everything written about me by the prophets, about the son of man, everything is going to be fulfilled. He's referring to the Old Testament. And I have to think that Jesus had in his mind the book of Isaiah. Turn with me. There, if you will, Isaiah 53. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, rose from the dead so that we too can rise from the dead at the end of time. Isaiah 53. Actually, I'm going to begin chapter 52. So here prophet says, see, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they've not heard, they will understand. At the very beginning, verse 13 the prophet is talking, right, foreshadowing Christ, right? Jesus is the wise one. He is the perfect one. He is God's servant. He's going to be raised up. He's going to be lifted up. He's highly exalted, right? Jesus is perfect. Jesus is God. He is sinless. Chapter 53, verse 1. 
Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is referring to Christ now, Jesus himself. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus just looked like an ordinary, normal human being. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely Christ, surely Jesus, surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Many of you know this verse. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. That song, how deep the father's love for us, right? It was my sin that held him there. Verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Right, right there, the resurrection is foreshadowed. Right, the, the grave, death, that's not the end of Christ. He will see his offspring he will rise from the dead, verse 11. After he has suffered, right here, here we go. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and were dismembered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Dear friends, that passage right there is the gospel. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, right? When it comes to the Bible, many of you know the Ten Commandments. I hope you know some of them, if not all of them. But we also know some of the big ones, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, serve the poor, give to the poor, uh, live a pure life in, in the inside of your inmost being. If you compare yourself to every single command, you'll find that you fall radically short you fall radically short of meeting the perfection of God's standard. But Christ is the one who came, full of grace and truth. Right, the Bible talks about Christ in the first Peter chapter two, he, he was sinless. He knew no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus lived the perfect life. It's not that he just didn't sin, he did all the good that you should be doing in life. But it goes more than that. See, Christ died the death we should have died. If you might think, you know, I, I really don't like this concept of hell and of wrath and of judgment. It just doesn't, my God would never send somebody to hell. 
It's a big talking point today. And just to be frank, your God would not send somebody to hell because your God does not exist. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is both a God of love and a God of wrath. And to help understand how, how does hell make sense? How is that just in terms of what little sin I've done in my life? Um, Chris Irwin, who teaches our Sunday school, he did this a couple weeks ago in Sunday school. Some of you may have heard this, but it's, you know, if you told a lie to your spouse, what, what would happen? They, they might give you a very ugly face. They might, you know, growl at you. Like, how dare you lie to me, right? That, that would be the punishment if you lied to your spouse. It might be a lot worse. If you lie to the police, you lie to the president, you lie to the government, you could see jail time, right? And you go up and up. The point is, the higher up the authority of who you lie against, the greater the punishment. And so it is with God. You might think, you know, I've just told a couple lies. It's not that big a deal. You know, I know I haven't been super pure in my life, but it's not that big a deal. I've only stolen a few little things here and there. It's not that big a deal. God says, all sin is against him. And the, the sin, the punishment for your sin is hell. It's eternal death. But the cross is all about Jesus dying the death we should have died. He took that punishment. He took that wrath. He took that anger. He paid the penalty that we deserve. But it doesn't end there, right? If Jesus stayed in the grave, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, we would be the most miserable people on earth. We would be, Christianity would be a joke if Jesus stayed in the grave. But that's what he says. But he says, if Christ rose from the dead, then everything changes. Everything changes. Because as Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, so now if you believe in him, at the end of time, you likewise will be raised from the dead. That is the gospel message, dear friends. You might be thinking, all right, I got that, I, I get that, um, but I, I still don't fully grasp it, right? If you're exploring Christianity, I still don't fully grasp it, or if you are a Christian, and that gospel message isn't captivating your heart as it should, I point you now to the, the very last portion of our passage. Bartimaeus's restored vision, verse 35 and following. Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This might be a little weird, but try, try to insert yourself into this man's shoes. Just for a moment. I'm going to do it with you. I mean, y'all are sitting, so I'm going to sit. So close your eyes for a few seconds and just try to insert yourself into what is it like to be blind can't see people. You can't see the clouds. You can't see where the stone is right in front of you to trip. You can't see anything. You're completely blind. And so, keep your eyes closed for this moment. So you hear, right, a, lot, a big footprint, a lot of stomps, a lot of ruckus going on, and you're blind, and this doesn't usually happen. You don't usually hear this big crowd. All right, you can open your eyes now. You hear that, and you think, what's going on? 
right? Because you can only hear. That's, that's the only connection in terms of what's going on around you. So you hear that, and you ask some people nearby, hey, hey, what's going on? What, what, what is all this noise? And they say, oh, the Jesus of Nazareth, he's walking by. And then, so a few things to take note of. The crowd calls him Jesus of Nazareth. That's just simply where he came from, right? Nothing special. And Jesus, that's just his name, right? Jesus of Nazareth, he's passing by. Now, Bart, I'll call him, he most likely had heard of Jesus before. Maybe he was, you know, he's sitting blind and he had heard some people uh, several yards away who were saying, you know what? My son, he had died, but now, but Christ, when we were in the funeral, Christ raised him back to life. Bart might have heard these things. We don't know fully his knowledge, but he knew of Jesus before he had had to have heard of him. Because in verse 38, he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's not just the generic Jesus of Nazareth. No, he attributes Jesus, the son of David, the one who is promised to come from David, the righteous one, the good one, the one from God, have mercy on me. Those who were in front, those who were nearby, those who were perhaps the barrier in between him and Jesus, they rebuked him. Hey, be quiet. You know, Jesus is on a mission, remember? Verse 31, I'm going to Jerusalem. I've got some very important work to do. They say, hey, hey, he's busy. He's busy. Just give him some space. He shouted all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And I think right here, these are some of the, especially verse 41, some of the most astounding verses to me personally in the Bible. Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. How many of you, whenever you always say, how are you doing? How things been lately? What do we always say? I'm busy. Oh, I'm just so busy. Busy, busy, busy. We all say that, right? Life is just so busy. Jesus, right here, getting ready to go to the cross is the busiest of busiest men. He has the most important job, most important task right in front of him. But what does he do? He stops. Jesus stopped, ordered the man to be brought to him. Right here, when he came near, I think this is is mind-blowing. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And just think about that for a moment. If Jesus asked you that question in person, what would you say to him? What do you want me to do for you? Lord, give me an extra $50,000. Lord, my back's hurting today. Can you straighten that up? What would you ask him for? Genuinely and sincerely. As Tom, who was with us last week, he, he, he said it differently. What are you asking God for that only God can do? It's just something, the fact that God Almighty would ask us, would ask him this question. What do you want me to do for you? And you have to think, why did Jesus ask that? Because it's pretty obvious, right? It's obvious to Jesus what this man's problem was. It's obvious to the crowd what this man's problem was. It's obvious to Bartimaeus what his problem was, right? If I... We're chopping down a tree with a chainsaw and, you know, I had kickback and stuff and all of a sudden the chainsaw buzzed off my arm right here and then I walk into the emergency room and then the receptionist and the doctor, they look at me and they say, what can I do you for? You know, what brings you in today? 
there's just blood gushing everywhere, right? It's like, uh, do you not see what I need? Similarly here, right? Don't you see Jesus? I mean, don't you see crowd? Don't you see Bartimaeus? What do you need? Why are you asking this? What do you want me to do for you? And I think it's, it's for this reason. They all knew what he needed. It's simply a matter of would Bartimaeus ask Jesus for what he needed? Would Bartimaeus ask Jesus for what he needed? Because Bartimaeus could have said, you know what, Jesus, I, I just wanted to say hi. I just wanted to meet you. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you stopping by just to, yeah, I just wanted to say hello. I, I'm good. I, I'm okay in life. You know, I, I've got my little cup. If you could give me a few, you know, coins for my, my plight right here. And if you could get me a new mat to lay on, that'd be kind of nice. Now, it's, would Bartimaeus ask Jesus for what he truly needed? And we see that he did. Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And all the people saw it. They also praised God. See, church, how many times do we not experience a blessing from God because we don't ask him for it? When God asks you, what do you want me to do for you? How can I bless you? What do you need in life? And we just say, Lord, I'm good. I've got it all together right now. I'm doing pretty okay. How many times do we not experience miracles because of our refusal to bring before Christ what we need in life? So friends, let's wrap all of this up. Like the different ways to cook an egg, remember at the beginning, it's different ways to cook an egg. When it comes to scripture and when it comes to sin, there are different ways the Bible describes sin. One of them is through the language of blindness. As Bartimaeus was physically blind, in a much more debilitating way, all of humanity is spiritually blind. Second Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 2, verse 11, describes we sinners, we're in the darkness, we walk around in the darkness, we don't know where we are going because the darkness has blinded us. You see, church, you and I are blind, but the reality is we are blind to the fact that we are blind. Did you catch that? We are blind to the fact that we are blind. But why did Jesus come into the world? Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 19. This is Jesus' first sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came into the world to recover the sight of the blind. Psalm 146, verse 8. The Lord gives sight to the blind. And today, right, as I close, I simply ask you this. Do you have eyes of faith to see the resurrected Christ? Do you have those open eyes that see Jesus for who he is? Do you see your sin? Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see that Jesus is the one who can heal you? Do you see Christ in the scriptures? 
Do you see him in the Old Testament? Do you see that this book is not about how to live a good moral life? This book is about Christ. Do you see that? About what Christ has done for you? Do you see that? And do you see Jesus as risen? Right? He's not in the grave. He is not dead. This isn't some false hope. Jesus is alive. History testifies to it. The eyewitnesses testify to it. Do you see that he is alive? If you don't, this is my last thing. How do you take this home? May that be your prayer in verse 41. Lord, I want to see you. May that be our closing prayer. Father, there's so much to unpack in the resurrection. So much to unpack of who you are and what you've done for us. God, some of us are Christians. We know you. But we are nonetheless distracted from the light of Christ and the beauty of his face. Some here today may not know you as Savior. They may not know you as Lord. We know your word tells us that before you've opened our eyes, we are blind. We are in the darkness. But we thank you, Jesus, that as Luke 24 declares, you open the minds of your followers so that they might see and understand who you truly are. For those here today who need that saving touch, who need that, those open eyes, who need a miracle in their lives, because it's only you who can open the eyes of the blind. Will you please come and do a miracle? And Jesus, for all of us, please help us to fix our gaze upon you. May we never lose sight of who you are. And as we focus our eyes upon you, may we sing, may we worship, may we dance, may we obey, and help us to faithfully follow you every single day of our lives. Please bless your people now as they go on their ways. Help us to walk in your resurrection power. In Jesus' name, amen.